we're in Judges chapter one. You know, I was thinking as we were sharing in communion, there, there are very few fellowships that take communion every Sunday. I don't know of a one that takes it every time they meet. Um, so it is an odd thing, it's, it's a little different. My parents, many of you know, are in town this week, and they were here on Sunday morning, and, and we were talking about it, and, and I had mentioned to my mother that, yeah, we, we take communion on Wednesday nights too, and she said, really? Because I grew up in a fellowship that took communion every single Sunday. We take it on Wednesday nights. She asked, well, why, why do you do that? And I thought about that. I gave her some answer. I don't even know what I said at this point, but the answer that I'll give you tonight is because it takes so little time for us to drift from the heart of the gospel. It takes so little time for a person to move away. And, and in taking it every Sunday, every Wednesday, we come back together, we're back at the table. We, we don't cease to forget that it's because of the cross of Jesus that we have salvation. It's because of what Jesus did. And it is easy to drift from that. As a, as a teaching pastor, I, I have some notes on my desk, in my, in my iPad, in my Bible, to just remind me, bring it back to Jesus. Bring it back to Jesus. Because even so, you start to get creative and you start to think other thoughts and try to make application. And next thing you know, you've, you've preached several weeks and you really haven't talked much about Jesus. And I, I've done that in the past. So it all brings us back to who he is. It takes so little time for us to drift. And tonight we're gonna to talk about how little time it takes to drift from one generation to the next. Judges 17, verse six, the key verse of the book we talked about on Sunday. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So tonight we're gonna to cover the first section of the book. I told you it divides into three sections. We'll cover part one in one evening and take a little longer, quite a bit longer on parts two and part three. Part one is chapters one through three, verse seven. We might even push it into verse eight. And it's called the degeneration of Israel. I'm using that as our title, if, if you need a title for our study tonight, the D-generation. And then, of course, chapter 3, verse 8, all the way through the end of chapter 16 is the deliverer judges of God, or what we've been calling them, the guardians of the unruly. And then part 3, chapter 17 through 21, again, is the depravity of an unruly people. So this is a book that literally spirals downward. It doesn't get better. In fact, you're even gonna see the first five of the 12 judges are what some commentators call the great judges, the big judges. And then you get into some judges that are a little more flawed and messy, and it gets messier and messier. With the first five judges, you're gonna see that every single time God will deliver his people, and not only will he deliver them, but there will be a season or years of rest where for 10 years or 20 years or 40 years, the land would have rest until the people spun out and, and they were attacked again. You get down to the last seven judges, there's no rest. It just kind of keeps going from one to the next, from one to the next. Well, we're gonna follow this whole thing through, but how does, how does a good generation become degenerate? How does a, a nation spiral into chaos and ruin and sin? There's a scientifically proven natural law that applies here. We call it the uh, 
law of thermo, second law of thermodynamics. It's also called the law of entropy, and, and it, it talks about the fact that in all things, order descends into chaos and not the other way around. Chaos does not develop into order, which we've talked about is the big problem with evolution, is that it, it teaches, and the Big Bang Theory and that whole, that whole line of thinking teaches that chaos produced order. Well, that's not how it works. And scientific law, natural law, has proven it to be the case that order descends into chaos. And that's what we see happen. It's been proven from the stars in the heavens to the bedrooms of many of your teenagers. Order descends into chaos. And that's natural. And among human beings, it's also spiritual. Which again, going back to this idea of coming to the table every Sunday, every Wednesday, as we gather, it's to, it's to maintain the order of our spiritual lives. To keep the first thing first. That we don't descend into chaos because we have a tendency to do that. Now, now I want to give you a little, bit, a little bit of prophecy here. Jesus in Matthew 24 made it very clear what the world was going to look like toward the end of the age. And he describes what Israel especially would be going through. And we've made applications here, but Matthew 24, verse six says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. Those things must take place. That is not yet the end. And ever since, literally, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the world has seen 2,000 years of wars on the increase. And at this time, there have been more wars since the First World War than any time before that. And ongoing problems and issues and skirmishes in, in our world. But Jesus also said nation will rise against nation. And that, by the way, doesn't necessarily have to be a nation rising against another nation. A nation can rise against itself. Nation can rise within nation against the nation. As we see an America very divided right now, says kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Well, that one's easy. Do you realize in the last 10 years that the major earthquakes, what they call great earthquakes in the world, have increased uh, by, they've tripled in 10 years. Now, I've, I've taught this before, and we've looked at Matthew 24 before and tried to graph and chart earthquakes, and since the first century to now, it's, it charts like this. Well, even in the last decade, earthquakes are charting even bigger and more often and higher. Mount Aloha is lighting up the sky in Hawaii right now after, what was it, 38 years that it's been quiet, and all of a sudden it's erupting, sending 200-foot lava fountains straight up into the sky, and the islands are shaking Great earthquakes are taking place, and it's not only in Hawaii. The entire rim of fire, as they call it, has been experiencing tremendous earthquakes. Well, there are natural birth pangs, and Jesus calls those out and describes those, and we see them in play. Even the, the roaring of the seas that brings about a perplexity among human beings. The natural birth pangs, the, the calamities that we see on planet Earth, oftentimes God will use those to get our attention, I, I believe. But there are also human birth pangs, not calamities happening in the world, in nature, but the sin nature. The sin nature of easily offended, often rebellious humanity. Here's an, a birth pang you may never have considered to be a birth pang. I know I hadn't until thinking about it just this week. 
In Matthew 24, 10, Jesus says, at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. The word fall away is not the word fall away as normally translated in the rest of the New Testament. That word we often see translated as apostasy, okay? And, and that's where the word, the translation is fall away. Well, the word for apostasy is not the word that Jesus uses here. So fall away isn't a good translation, really. At that time, many will fall away. The word in the Greek is be scandalized, scandalizo, or in other words, many will be offended. Right? I mean, we live in a culture that is constantly offended. A culture where your average comedian doesn't know where he can perform or she can perform anymore because you gotta be so careful what you're gonna say. You will offend someone. The birth pang of offense. I'd never thought about this before, but we are living in a time where people are constantly offended. They're offended by the Bible. They're offended by humor. They're offended by a tweet of a photo of Elon Musk's nightstand with Diet Coke on it. This is offensive and upsetting. I don't understand. This is a birth pain. People are losing their, even their sense of humor. And it follows along with a birth pain of increasing rebellion, really against authority of any kind. So we look around the world, and, and, and Jake was mentioning, kind of hinting at, you know, a world that is, seems to be coming unraveled. We see the ongoing Russian war in Ukraine. We see wars in northern Iraq and, and northern Syria. Protests in Brazil, riots in Kazakhstan. Uprisings in Iran, which is interesting. And even more interesting to me, in heavy-handed communist China, the people are revolting against the government there. And it remains to be seen how the government is going to respond and how heavily they will respond, will we have another Tiananmen Square situation like back in 1989? But people are upset all around the world. Even in normally calm nations like Belgium, there are riots. Riots going on, unrest in, in Germany, in the Netherlands. I would think it'd be too cold for any unrest. And not to mention the unrest that we've been experiencing and seeing in our own country over the last several years. So we're witnessing now a, a, a massive global resistance both to governing authorities and to the rule of law. Now, I'm going somewhere with all this. My Bible's open. We'll get there. But it, it, it's interesting. It's been said that even a bad government is better than no government at all. You heard that before? And during the intense persecutions that were going on in the first century against the church, especially with Caesar Nero and subsequent Caesars in Rome, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And many of us really struggled with that verse during the lockdowns of COVID. I'm supposed to respect the governing authorities. What do I do when I don't? <laughs> what do I do when I disagree? The ironic truth in all of this is it speaks to the human nature, not the sin nature, but the human heart. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, people want to be led. People want to be led for all the rebellion, for all the unrest that comes out of a sense of not being well led. 
and people want to be led. We long for a, a singular, strong, perfect, absolute, yet peaceful ruler. You know why? Because that's where, how we were created. We were created to be a people who acknowledge our God. We were created to be a people who worship one higher, greater, and perfect. So we have that desire deep down inside of us. And yet in humanity and across history, we have not been able to find that perfect ruler, that perfect king, that perfect president or potentate. And so unrest begins to stir when we find that, yeah, it's not gonna be this guy either. Psalm 2, verse 6, God says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the father speaks to the son, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Yahweh says to Yeshua, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And you know what? If you are rebellious to Jesus, the perfect ruler, the one who is coming, well, yeah, then you're looking at a, a breaking and a shattering. But if you love the Lord, if you trust the Lord, well, then you know his rod and his staff are comfort. Psalm 23, verse four. So I joyfully look forward to, and I agree with Jesus when he prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the meantime, generation to generation, we are looking for a leader. All of this makes a study of the times of the judges, guardians of the unruly, a truly timely teaching. So beginning in chapter one, verse one, and keeping some of that just Rick's ramblings in your mind, now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord says, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. People want to be led. Well, who's gonna lead us now? Remember, the people had been used to a leader, the strong leadership of Moses leading them out of Egypt. I shared with our staff this morning, even the poor leadership, the dictatorial leadership of the pharaohs in Egypt, at least there was a leader there. And then Moses leads them with a strength they had not seen out of Egypt and all the way to the border of the promised land. And then he hands the baton, if you will, passes the baton, hands the mantle over to Joshua. And with Joshua, they had strong leadership. Now another man of integrity, one who knows the Lord, and they follow Joshua. Now Joshua's dead. What does it take for one generation to degenerate? And in this case, there's a lack of leadership. There's a leadership vacuum. There shouldn't be, because at this point, the reason why the Lord told Moses, give him Joshua, the reason why the Lord didn't tell Joshua to give them someone else is because the leader is supposed to be the Lord. Now it's time, 40 years from Egypt to the promised land, 38 being led about the desert to understand, to know who the Lord is. And that entire generation came into the land with Joshua. And as the Bible tells us, that entire generation stayed faithful, mostly, to the Lord. So now it's time with the death of Joshua for them to move forward in this mighty theocracy with God as king, God as their leader and their ruler. And the first thing they say after Joshua dies is, 
who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? Who's gonna lead us now? We will see this continue until it gets so loud that the people are crying for a king like the nations. And God will give them Saul in answer to that request. People want to be led. And so God says, all right, Judah is the lead tribe, not an individual, but the tribe. Judah goes first. Well, we know this about Judah. Genesis chapter 49, verse eight. Old Jacob said, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah's the warrior tribe. Judah leads out. Numbers chapter two, verse nine. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400 by their armies, they shall set out first. Numbers chapter 10, verse 14. The standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their armies, set out first with Nachshon, the son of Amminadab, over its army. Judah is the first to go into war. Judah's the one to lead out. So we're following that same pattern as the judges begins. Who shall go up? Judah shall go up, the Lord says. Again, following the strong leadership of Moses and the integrity and strength of Joshua, it's supposed to be the Lord, and already there's a waffling here in this new generation. Israel is still looking for a leader. Currently, it's Benjamin Netanyahu again. But they're still looking for that, that leader, that man of peace, and they're going to be duped by the Antichrist. You Bible students know Islam is looking for their Messiah. They're going to be duped. And there are others looking for that leader who can bring it all together and they are all going to be duped. Are you still looking for a leader today? Or are you being led by the Lord? Psalm 24, verse seven says, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And so our answer is always the Lord. It is not a president, it is not a boss, it is not a pastor or a shepherd or an elder. Our leader is Jesus himself. No one else, it's not a committee, it's not a tribe like Judah. It's as the elder spoke to John, Revelation chapter five, verse five, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, and he is our leader. Other people want to be led. Who's going to go? Judah will go. Then Judah said, verse three, to Shimon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted me that we may fight against the Canaanites and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Shimon went with him. Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. Now this is a great coalition and it makes sense. Judah and Shimon working together, fighting together, it makes sense relationally. They're blood brothers by Jacob and Leah. So both mom and dad, they share together, Judah and Simeon or Shimon. And so that makes sense. It makes sense geographically because, again, by your Bible maps, the territory allotted to Judah in, is in, encompasses the territory allotted by Shimon. So they share this territory, if you will, Judah all the way around the outside and Shimon down in the middle. And so let's go fight together, Judah says. But this is also what a good leader does. It's also good advice for you and me as followers of Jesus that we say to a brother, we say to a sister, come fight with me. Come fight with me. Let's go together against the enemy. We don't go by ourselves. 
but we stand together against the enemy in the land. And so Judah says to Shimon, let's go, and they go. Verse five, they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek, Lord of Lightning, he fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. It's what you might call the agony of defeat. <laughs> King of Canaan really lost a toehold here. Uh, it's the end of his rule of thumb. Sorry, I know those were totally uncalled for. Why, why this strange digital deletion? The cutting off of thumbs and toes, we could go on and on about this because it is so weird. It's so strange. They caught the king. I mean, in every other case, what do they do? They catch the king and they chop off his head or they kill him or they hang him up on a tree or something like that. No, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Not even all his toes, just the big ones. What is going on here? Verse seven, Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table as I have done so God has repaid me. So they brought him to, to Jerusalem and he died there. And we don't know how he died. I don't know if it was, you know, homemade poisoning. I don't know. I don't know if he just bled out or if he died of old age, but he died there in Jerusalem with no thumbs and no toes. And he recognizes that what goes around comes around. That this was the punishment he inflicted on other kings, 70 of them who ate scraps under his table like dogs without toes and thumbs. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Stay with that thought for a minute and, and listen to what Jesus says. He says in, in Luke chapter six, verse 38. And in fact, turn over there. Turn over to Luke chapter six. And while you're turning, listen to verse 38. And, and I'm gonna give you a little bit more once we get there. But in verse 38, he says, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Which sounds an awful lot like, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. By your standard of measure, Luke 6, 38, it will be measured to you in return. So I can read that and say, if I sow seeds of discord or discontent, if I cut people off or cut them down, I'll end up eating scraps under the same table. Just like the kings under the table of Adonai Bezek, now Adonai Bezek finds himself in the same place. God is not mocked. What goes around truly does come around. And so Jesus makes this comment here in verse 38. He says, by your standard of measure, at the end of the verse, it will be measured to you in return. Question, what does Jesus mean by your standard of measure? By your standard of measure. This is often used, this verse, in messages on giving and tithing. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. It's kind of a prosperity gospel thing, taking this verse out of context, by the way, and saying, if you give heartily, you will receive heartily, and that's the way it works. You scratch God's back, he'll scratch yours, but that's not what this has to do with at all. In fact, this verse has nothing to do with financial giving. Listen to the context, verse 35. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind 
to ungrateful and evil men. You will see that in the rest of our study tonight. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And by the way, you can imagine in the marketplace, someone with a bag, and they're receiving grain in the bag, and they fill up the bag and then press it down and shake it out so it spills off the top, and they fill it up again until it is truly full. That's what Jesus is describing. You're not gonna be ripped off. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. What is he talking about giving? What is the standard of measure? It is your love. It's your mercy. It's your kindness. It's your forgiveness. The whole point that I'm getting to is use your hands and your feet to serve. Use your hands and your feet to serve and to care and to love and and to forgive rather than to cut someone off. There's something else that this brings me to here and that's simply to say it is hard to serve, much less it is hard to fight without thumbs and big toes. This warrior king, by having his thumbs cut off, would never again be able to effectively grasp a sword or spear. By having his toes, his big toes cut off, he would never again have stability and balance in battle. And so not only is this, you know, God is not mocked. What goes around does in fact come around, but he is being depleted of his ability to do what a warrior king would do, and that is to fight. He's not gonna be able to fight ever again. Even were he to get away to be rescued by his people and taken off, he is an ineffective warrior from here on out, and the same is true of you and of me. And that is, we need our thumbs And we need our big toes intact. In fact, we need our thumbs and our big toes to be sanctified. Rick, what in the world are you talking about here? We're a royal priesthood, right? 2 Peter 2.9. We are a royal priesthood. Do you recall the high priestly ordination of Aaron and what took place at that time? Let me read it to you. Leviticus chapter eight, verse 23, Moses slaughtered the ram of ordination and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of Aaron's right hand and on the big toe of Aaron's right foot. We, like Aaron, need sanctified ears to hear God's voice. We need sanctified thumbs that we might accurately handle the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. Sadly, too many believers are all thumbs when it comes to the Bible. And I'm I'm making a lot of word plays here, but but you know what I'm saying. And the fact that you have, again, as Jake said, you've all chosen to be here tonight. You've chosen to make this a priority that you can accurately handle the word of truth. God will bless that in your life as a royal priesthood strong thumbs that grasp the sword of the truth and ears that are sanctified, purified to truly hear the voice of God. What about the big toe? Hey, we need sanctified big toes to walk with stability by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, Paul says, let us walk by the Spirit because we live in an unstable world of war and offense. So we need 
our thumbs. And we need our big toes. You can go back to Judges. We need them for the use that God has given to us. And that use, we use our hands and our feet to love, to serve, to live out the very gospel that has saved us. Judges chapter one, verse eight, continuing, then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. It would be one of some 35 to 40 times that Jerusalem was completely razed and lowered to the ground and then built up again. I mean, the layers of history in Jerusalem are stunning. It's one of my favorite things about traveling there is we see several layers of history going back 4,000 years. In fact, when they fought against Jerusalem, as you'll see in a moment, they fought against the Jebusites. And as we go down, when we visit Jerusalem, we go down into what's called the city of David, which is the southern area of the city. The original city was the city of David, and then it built up around the Temple Mount up to the north. But when you go down there, down toward the bottom of the city of David, there's a wall, 4,000-year-old wall that they call the Jebusite Wall would have been built there at the time by the people of Jebus, when that is what it was called. So those of you going in May, you're gonna see the Jebusite wall. I know it's very exciting for you. We're gonna see a wall. Well, you'll see a lot more than that too. So continuing on, they fought against Jerusalem. They set it on fire. Afterwards, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country and in the Negev, and in the lowland, a quick side note on verse nine, you've just seen the entire topography of Israel. It's interesting how it's broken down, but these are the three sections or the three uh, topographical sections of the entire country, the hill country, it's very hilly in certain areas, the Negev, which is the desert area, and then the lowland or the Shephelah is the word in the Hebrew, and that speaks of the valleys in between the hills, and that describes all of Israel. Verse 10, so Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriat Arba. We talked about that in our Joshua study. And they struck Shishai and Achimon and Talmai, three big guys in the region, in the hill country around Hebron. Kalev fought against them. Verse 11, then from there, he went on against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the name of Debir was formerly Kiriat Sefer, which means uh, city of the book. Kalev said, the one who attacks Kiriath's affair and captures it, I will give him my daughter Aksa for a wife. We read this story in Joshua quite recently as well, back in Joshua 15. And so he said, I'll give a wife to the one who conquers and Otniel, not Oatmeal, Otniel, the son of Canads, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter Aksa for a wife. And then it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. And she alighted from her donkey and Kalev said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Kalev gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. You may recall we talked about pictures of the Holy Spirit in that. And you can go back and listen to that or think that through if you'd like to. The descendants then of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, who was Moses' father-in-law? Jethro, yeah. So Jethro was a Kenite. And um, here we see Otniel is a Kenite, and so there's a connection, as we talked about, to Caleb, Kalev. And Kalev and Otniel are brothers, probably half-brothers. 
um, as, as the story goes back, trying to piece it together in history. But the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, that's Jethro, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, and they went and lived with the people. So there were always Kenites. There were always people of Jethro, even though some of his sons left Moses and the people at Mount Sinai, there were always Kenites who stayed with the people of Israel and, and were part of that group. So it's interesting just to note that because Israel wasn't absolutely exclusive. Israel, we already see early on an opportunity for people who would share faith in Yahweh to be part of this people. And so they were. And they went up from the city of Palms. It's not Palm Springs. That is Jericho. Okay? They went from Jericho, city of palms, same thing. And Jericho, even today, is a city of, of palm trees. Then Judah went with Shimon, verse 17, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites, Canaanites living in Zephat and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. We saw that before, utter destruction. What the writer of Judges is doing is pulling us in, in from the recent history and bringing us through that generation into the next generation. And so Judah, verse 18, took Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. You will hear those three names a lot because they will be primary cities of the Philistines. And what's interesting is all three of those names are still used today in Israel. That's another fascinating thing about the land. We, we change names all the time or we think about America being old with names that go back 200 years. And there are names in Israel that go back 3,000, 4,000 years that are still used on traffic signs in different cities and towns. So Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Huh. Why couldn't Judah and Shimon take the valley. They took the hill country, and you might note, and I even highlighted it in my Bible, verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. They knew the Lord was with them in the hill country, and so they took the hill country, but when they got down into the valley, their faith failed. Why? Because their eyes were fixated on iron chariots rather than on the Lord. Remember they had defeated iron chariots in the north? Remember that from our previous study back in Joshua 11, that they went up against the iron chariots and, and the, the cavalry of the five northern kings and they took them out, foot soldiers of Israel, because the Lord was with them and they trusted the Lord. And so I can only assume that the Lord was with them and they took possession of the hill country because they trusted God in the hill country, but when it came to the valleys, they lost faith. And isn't that the way of it? Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God, Psalm 20, verse 7 says. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness, Psalm 68, 17. And yet they could not take the valley because of the iron chariots. Wasn't he with them in the valley? Of course he was. What was not with them in the valley? I submit to you that faith was not in the valley. The Lord was there as he was in the hill country. They had faith in the hill country, but somehow in the valley, they got rattled by the iron chariots and they were not able to take the valley. 
And that is so often the way it is. Man, it is easy for me to have faith in the hill country, faith on the mountaintop, faith when I'm riding high with the Lord, when I'm on retreat, when I'm away from the difficulties of the lowlands, when I'm up high and flying high with Jesus. Man, it's easy to have faith, but when I get down in the valley and I see the enemy, it's easy to be defeated. Don't ever forget what David wrote, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the hill country, on the mountaintops, or in the valley, God is with us. The question is, do we recognize that by faith? And do we trust him even in the valleys? Now, that's all background of that generation coming forward. And now I want you to watch the degeneration of a generation. The degeneration of a generation, and I'll give you five things, five kind of points of degeneration, and the very first one is the release of a rival. The release of a rival, verse 20. Not a rival as in arriving, but a rival. You could say the release of the rival, just to make it clear. Then they gave Hebron to Kalev as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. And that, again, that is uh, the three that are mentioned back in verse 10, Sheshai, Ahiam, Talmai. Verse 21, but the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. That's gonna be repeated several times in this chapter. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied upon Bethel. Now, uh, the name of the city was formerly Lutz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go free. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and he built a city and named it Lutz, which is its name to this day. That's great. He helps them sneak into and destroy original Lutz and then he goes off and establishes new Lutz. He reestablishes a city. Listen, just like, just like unconquered sin. You can't make deals with sin in your life. They make a deal with this guy and he goes on to be a presence in the land and a city in the land and a problem, again, like all of those who are remaining in the land that were supposed to be completely wiped out. He just moves from there up to where the Hittites are and reestablishes himself. Now, I want you to think about something because it's interesting. This could be seen as a similar story to the story of Rahav, right? Because the spies went to Rahav the house of Rahav, and, and, and they made a deal with her. We'll let you live, you know, but you gotta let us out of here and, and you need to get, you know, give us some info. They got the info from her and she let them live and, and they would ultimately let her live and they escaped out her window. They put that scarlet cord there. Well, you read that story, you read this story and say, well, how is it different? These guys come to this guy and say, help us out. He does, so they, they let him live. What's the difference? Faith is the difference. Because Rahav expressed faith in the one true God, faith in Yahweh. Before there was ever a deal struck, she said, I know that your God is God. And so she expressed her desire to be a follower of Yahweh, and the spies made that deal. This guy makes no such agreement. 
They just let him off the hook and he goes off and he reestablishes lutes and remains in his, in his paganism, the release of a rival. Now listen, there are certain attributes in our lives, things that we do sinfully, but that are redeemable. Now let's you think about what might that be. I, maybe for a musician, it could be for years you played in bars, but then you get saved. How do you redeem the ability to play good music? You join the worship team. So that's an example of an attribute or a gift or a talent that is now redeemed for the use of the Lord. That's a good thing. You don't just cut off the guitar playing or cut off the thumbs that play the guitar, however you want to use that. You redeem that ability, but you never redeem the sin itself. Sin has to be killed dead. Sin has to be wiped out or it will crop up again. Lutes will become new lutes. And there will be a new place now where now there's another problem that repeats itself like a dog that returns to its vomit, the Bible says, is a fool who repeats his folly. Or Romans chapter six, verse eight, Paul says, now we have died with Christ and we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. Once and for all, so sin had to die, dies with Jesus on the cross, or it lives in your life or mine and kills us. Sin's gotta die. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a replacement theology that I can live with. And I'm very opposed to, you all may know, replacement theology, that is the church replacing Israel, but to replace the old with the new, that is just wisdom. To replace that which is dead with that which is alive, that which is unholy with that which is holy, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. But this is exactly what Israel did not do. They didn't kill off the inhabitants of the land. They allowed some to remain, and there are pockets. And we see that back in verse 21. The sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites, so the Jebusites remained there. These, these guys of, of the house of, of Joseph, they let a guy go free, and now he's continuing with his family and all the paganism that goes with them. But continue on. Manasseh did not take possession of Bet-Shan in its villages or Teanach in its villages or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages or the inhabitants of Ibleim in its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo in its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. Now, if you were a military strategist, verse 27 would be very interesting to you because you would recognize that these are all places of great strategic interest. Bet-Shan is a place that we also visit on our Israel tours. It is a massive integral site because Bet-Shan sits right in a valley, the passage be, along what's called the Via Maris, the way of the sea, from the Jordan Valley into the Jezreel Valley. So this was a stronghold that if someone was trying to come from one side to the other, they would have to pass through Bet-Shan. Well, they couldn't take Bet-Shan, so the enemy stayed there. And then you've got this main artery of travel continues on down. Tanakh, Dor, Ibleim, and Megiddo were all fortress cities in the valley of Megiddo. And they couldn't take any of them. 
The issue here, however, is not military and it's not geography. Continue on, verse 28. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Getzer. So the Canaanites lived in Getzer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Katron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. What is this subject to forced labor? Israel thought they could control these people. And I think you know what the parallel is right there. I'm gonna allow this sin to dwell in my life. I can control it. I can handle it. Continuing on. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Zidon or Ahlab or Hachizib or Helba or Afik or of Rehob. And so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bet Anat, but lived among the Canaanites. The inhabitants of the land and the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh and Bet Anat came, became forced labor for them. Okay, we'll control them, they're thinking. And then the Amorites, verse 34, forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris and Aijalon and in Shealbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor, and the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now again, it's not geography and it's not even military things we're talking about. The second issue here of degeneration, and note this, that this is all of this degeneration is already taking place during the generation of Joshua. During the time of Joshua, Joshua's not yet dead when all this is taking place, when they're not taking out all these pockets. They're leaving pockets of Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites in the land. The second issue here is what I would call the cancer of Canaan. The cancer of Canaan. This phrase, they didn't drive out, that we see seven times in this chapter, which is a complete mess. They didn't drive out. It's lo horisu. When you see the, the word lo in Hebrew, it, it negates the next thing. So this is not, did not, and then the next thing, horasu, we see translated drive out. They did not drive out. Note this, that drive out not only means to dispossess, it means to take possession. It not only means to take possession, but to dispossess. That is, it's both. Sometimes we think we can take possession and leave some things alone. I can take possession of my spiritual life and still live as a good old American boy, whatever that means. I can take possession of the promises of God and still enjoy all my TVMA shows. I can take possession of the things of God and and still do, and, and fill in the blanks. To truly take possession means also to dispossess. The sin must be driven out to take possession of the promises of God, and that's what they didn't do. And so what happens? The cancer of Canaan remained. Understand that the motive for driving the Canaanites completely out of the land was not just pragmatic so that they could take the land, 
This is what Israel's thinking. Well, we already have the land, so if they're still here, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal because their presence is a spiritual cancer. That the Israelites thought that they could control the Canaanites by forced labor was not true. Like cancer cells, the Canaanites remaining in these little pockets in the land were a spiritual disease that spread and led to the degeneration of the next generation. Continue on, chapter two, verse one. Now we saw this on Sunday, the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, who I told you I believe is Jesus before Christ. And I think there's all kinds of massive evidence for that. For we see the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said I will never break my covenant with you. Obviously, God is speaking. Obviously, he has come up in this person, the persona of the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. However, the Bible tells us that God is invisible, and no one has seen him. Therefore, the Malach Yahweh must be someone other than Yahweh, the Father, and so we see, I believe, Jesus here. He says in verse two, as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Wow. This tells us so much about God, so much about his character and nature. You know, as a father, I had my good moments when my kids were smaller, especially my good moments of discipline, and I had my bad moments. I can't always say that I was so gentle to say, you have not obeyed me, what have you done? I know what you have done, <laughs> you know, as I'm calling it out. And the Lord says, very truly, very gently, you have not obeyed me. What's going on? What have you done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. And when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And so they named that place Bochim. That means weepers. So there they sacrificed to the Lord, the place of the weepers. Number three, and this is an issue of the degeneration. It's very subtle right now, but it's already going on that will lead to a degenerate generation. And it is number three, the sorrow of shame. The sorrow of shame. What was the result of the weeping? Because on the surface, you look at this and say, wow, uh, they sacrificed there. They lifted up their voices and wept. Obviously, they were broken. They, they sacrificed, so there must have been repentance. This is a good thing, right? This is a wonderful thing. What was the result of the weeping? See, if our tears don't affect change in our lives, what are they good for? What does it really matter? The Malach Yahweh, he, he provokes an immediate response. Angel of the Lord provokes this, this sorrowful, tearful weeping at Bochim, and they even have an altar call. They sacrifice to the Lord. And it is so like coming forward, and I'm not, listen, I'm not denigrating or demeaning anyone's decision to come forward on a Sunday in brokenness. I think that is where it starts. But it's like coming forward on a Sunday morning in tears and going home and right back to the same old behavior. But I repented, and I was good for an hour and a half. You know, I was good for 37 minutes. And nothing changes. 
And so what you have is what the Bible would refer to as the sorrow of the world. I feel bad. I feel guilt. I feel shame. I, I, I look into the eyes of Jesus and I just can't look and, 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 and tears fill my eyes. It says they served the Lord all that generation, right? Following us, you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that they went home and finally drove out the Canaanites. It doesn't say that they rid the land once and for all of all the idolatry that was there. You can weep all you want, but weeping won't cure the cancer. Feeling bad? That's a step. But what does that sorrow do? Romans chapter two, verse four, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, having written a letter, 1 Corinthians, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. And then he says this absolutely key verse in our response to the Lord, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret. A repentance is a turning around, a going the opposite direction. We will no longer tolerate Canaanites in the land or idolatry in the land. We're done with it. We repent. We will change this behavior. But, Paul says, the sorrow of the world just produces death. I like how Charles Spurgeon said it. One grain of faith is better than a gallon of tears. A drop of genuine repentance is more precious than a torrent of weeping. Sorrow that does not provoke change is a sorrow unto death. And so, yes, they're tearful. Yes, they weep at Bochim. Yes, they even offer sacrifices, but they don't go back and make the necessary changes. So the cancer of Canaan remained embedded in place for the next generation. Commentator Davis says, what began as toleration became apostasy. What seemed so reasonable became lethal. Living with the Canaanites led to worshiping with the Canaanites. Tolerate Baal's people. Sooner or later, you will bow at Baal's altar. Watch this, verse 11. Well, we can read verse six. When Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel each went to his inheritance to possess the land. Again, they went to take the land, but they did not drive out the cancer. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great work of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So they did serve the Lord, they did trust the Lord, but they did not fulfill the calling of driving out the sin and the evil. And then Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnat Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And if you stop there, we saw this all on Sunday. We talked about these things. But there arose another generation after them, watch this, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. My friends, they knew of the Lord. 
They had to know of the Lord. They were aware of their history. They knew about the things the Lord had done. But what the Bible tells us, and this is key, is they did not know the Lord. And one day, there are gonna be people who stand before Jesus, and they're gonna go, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do all manner of supernatural things in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. It's the relationship that matters. And the difference between Joshua's generation and this next generation now, the generation that begins the judges, is they may have known about the Lord, but they didn't know the Lord. There was no personal reaction, no personal relationship with Yahweh as their God. And so the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 11, and served the Baals, plural. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtarot. Baal. The word Baal means owner, master, husband, Lord. Specifically, Baal, they, they saw as the overall, the, the big guy, the Lord of, of fertility and the storms. So he was like, it was like a generic name, Baal. Number four, the problem that we see as this generation degenerates is the lordship of losers. The lordship of losers. Verse 11 says the Baals. In Hebrew, that's Baalim. And that's because Baal represented so many different deities. In fact, any deity they wanted, they could just attach the name Baal and make that a deity. So they had Baal Hermon, which was lord of destruction. They had Baal Gad, the lord of fortune. There was Baal Perazim, lord of the breaks. Baal Peor, lord of the gap. Baal Zebub. Lord of the Flies. There was, and by the way, Baal, with all of these iterations, always sexual in nature, always sexual. And then they had uh, Baal's consort. So Baal always had a, a female. You know what's very interesting about the God of Israel? Unlike all the pagan gods, he didn't need a consort to create the world. He created, he did it. It wasn't him and her. And with all, see, because we're made in God's image, but all the pagan gods are made in the image of man. And so they had to function like a man and a woman, and a man couldn't make a child by himself, so there has to be a woman, so now you've got a male and a female god to work together, you've got Ashtarot. Ashtarot, which by the way means star. Ashtarot, star, it's the many-breasted goddess of sensuality and, and lust, and, and to a degree, um, she was also a goddess, a goddess of fertility. Ashtarot is the plural form, by the way, of Astarte. In, in Greece, it was Aphrodite. In Rome, her name was Venus. But this goddess worship goes all the way back to ancient Babylon and the goddess that they called Ishtar. And in every case, there was an Ishtar to go along with, or, or a, a Venus or Aphrodite or an Astarte to go along with the male uh, iteration of God that they believed in, God with a little g. Titus chapter one, verse 15, Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. 
But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I read you that verse because Baal and, and Ashtaroth are alive and still worshiped today all over this culture. People have different names for them, but the God of power and the God of fortune and the goddess of sensuality, isn't it interesting that we call so many of our stars, we refer to them as, as stars and, and how many of these stars are hypersexualized. What is that? Why is that always the case? Why is it that a young woman goes into music and the only way to make it is start to use, use expletives in her music and to become sexualized and, and, a, and a sexual symbol instead of just having a beautiful voice? See, this is all wound up and, and, and people wouldn't call it out and think of it out loud, but th this, this is what's going on. This is a spiritual issue that has continued since ancient Babylon and continues to this very day. So verse 14, and it was no different for the Israelites in this land than it is for us today. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord turned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of the enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so they were severely distressed. So note this in verse 15. He didn't do anything he hadn't already told him he was going to do if they failed him, if they rebelled against him. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. He's following through. So we're seeing this faithful follow-through on the part of God. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up Shopatim, judges, what we've called guardians, who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. Now, if you remember their fathers, a lot of their fathers hadn't done so well. But at least they were learning, at least they were processing, at least they were continuing to follow the Lord. And now this generation is completely degenerating when the Lord uh, raised up judges for them, verse 18, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved by, to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. A little side note here, the word groaning is, is used only two other times before you get to this chapter. It's used one time later in Jeremiah. The two other times it's used in Exodus and the groaning is the same word used of the groaning of the people enslaved in Egypt. So now they're in the land and they are groaning again as though enslaved, plundered by these enemies. Verse 19, it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. And this is the nauseous carousel that we talked about Sunday morning. Remember that? This carousel, this cycle that they go through, they will go through this seven times in this book. They will go through this exact same cycle. Seven times through the judges over 340 years. They will provoke God. They will play the harlot. They will be plundered by the enemy. Then they will turn around and, and with penitence, they will make their pleas to God. He will bring 
pity and deliverance and they will be back to peace with God until they provoke him again. And they continue around. And that's the description here. And again, this is, this is even still introductory. But I want to point something out here. And you may have caught it. In fact, I saw some of your eyebrows go up in verse 15. That wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Does the Lord use evil? This is a theological issue, and this is one of the, the theological challenges that I mentioned that we would find, several theological challenges as we go through the book of Judges. Does the Lord use or manipulate evil even for ultimate good? You know, does the end justify the means, and will he use the means of evil to produce an eventual good? Anyone want to venture an answer to that one? The Bible tells us very clearly, unquestionably, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is good. In fact, that word good and goodness describes God to a T. There is no evil in God. So the answer, the simple answer to does God use or manipulate evil even for ultimate good, simple answer is no. But Rick, it says right here that the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken. Okay, the word evil, note this, in your Bibles, the Hebrew word is ra'ah. And ra'ah can mean evil. It can also mean hurt, it can mean affliction, and it can mean trouble. Well, how do we know what it means? Context. The context helps you understand what the meaning of the word truly is. The context here is the hand of the Lord. The Lord does not use evil, but the Lord will bring calamity. The Lord doesn't use sin or wickedness, but he will bring troubles. He will put us in position to have trials. Isaiah 45, seven says he's the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being, and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Well, I don't know if I like that. Well, I'm sorry. That's the way it is. Yes, God will use trouble. Yes, God will use calamity. Yes, God will use difficulty. And I, you know, I, I grew up with using the phrase, God will allow, because I didn't want to say God will do this. God will allow pain, but God wouldn't cause pain. No, God will cause pain. Not evil, but he will cause pain if it will bring about good. And that's the distinction here. We're not talking about evil. We're not talking about temptation or wickedness. What we're talking about is trouble, and the Lord will send trouble and did send trouble the way of Israel. The Lord will call upon, in fact, you remember what he called Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon? He called him my servant. I will send my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, against Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar, this enemy, this pagan enemy, would go against Judah as an instrument of the Lord's punishment of Judah, but ultimately, the Lord would then punish Nebuchadnezzar. And it's very interesting how the Lord does these things. Do you fully comprehend this? Probably not. I don't. Verse 20. 
So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. God could have flicked the Canaanites right off the map had he so desired. But he said, nope, if you want to do it this way, I'm going to let you do it this way. There's another theological challenge here. It says that in verse 22, he did this in order to test Israel. The word test in the Hebrew, kind of like evil, evil can mean evil, uh, ra'ah can mean evil or it can mean trouble or hurt. The word test, nasot, can mean tempt. It either means tempt or it means to prove or to try. By the way, the Greek word for temptation also can mean test or proving. So interesting use of the word. Well, wait a minute. James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So let's make this as clear as possible. The Lord does not use sin, nor will he tempt someone to or with sin. In fact, Jesus even prayed, do not even lead us into temptation. I added the word even, but that's the implication. Don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from sin. The prayer is, don't even let me get close. Don't even let me get into the place of the lure. Keep me far from it. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So God will not tempt with evil or tempt to cause to sin, but he will try you. He will test you to prove you. What do you mean to prove me? To prove a heart of faith. God will take us through trials to prove our faith. And listen to me, it's not so that he can know. He knows where your faith is, but he'll take you into trial so that you will know. Why did God test Abram? Why did he say, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go up to the mountain of which I will show you and sacrifice him there? Why the test? Did God not know what Abraham would do? Of course he knew, but Abraham didn't. Abraham needed to go through the test. Abraham needed to know where his faith stood with the Lord. And so the Lord will take us into trials and tests so that we can know, so that we can learn. I love the 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Love this verse. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. See, I have been fully known. God fully knows me. He fully knows everything I'm gonna do. He knows everything I'm gonna say. He knows my foolishness and he knows my strength. And he will take me into times of testing, knowing exactly what I'm gonna do, but I don't know until I come through the test, until I'm to the other side of the trial, and then I look back and then I say, oh. I either say, oh, for good, oh, Lord, Thank you for strengthening me through this. Or I say, oh, we need a little work. But I am taken through that I may know what God is doing is testing Israel to know where they stand, 
to know something of themselves that they don't yet obviously know. He tests them for two purposes. He tests them to prove them militarily. Chapter three, verse one. These are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. So there's a military testing going on. He's leaving this pockets of resistance so the people will grow strong and mighty and then have peace through strength. Thank you, Ronald Reagan. So it was to be proved militarily, but it was also to prove them morally. Verse three, these nations are the five lords of the Philistines. These are the ones that God left in place. All the Canaanites and the Zidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamat. He left all these in place. This, is, this runs the gamut of the land. They were for, verse four, for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. This is not so that God will find out if they will obey him. It's so that they will find out if they will obey him. See how utterly personal that is? Some would. Some would obey God and, and discover faith. The judges will find themselves to be people of faith, having been proved in great trials. Others will also stand along with the judges during this season, and they will be proven to be faithful, but many would be proven not. But the ones who needed to be proven were themselves. Because again, God knows exactly what they're gonna do. The generation of Joshua was faithful. Now, now stay with me a couple more minutes here. They were faithful, but they released their rivals. They left the cancer of Canaan in place. Their sorrow was for shame. They allowed the lordship of losers, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, to continue until finally now we come to it, number five, the delivery of degeneration. The delivery of degeneration. Let me tell you what I mean here. Verse five, the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives. And they gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The delivery of degeneration what I'm talking about here is now this next generation is birthed into degeneration. The generation of Joshua was, like I said at the beginning, primarily faithful, primarily trusting in the Lord, that original generation. But the generation they give birth to is degenerate. Why? All five things that I already told you that took place in Joshua's generation. So the next generation was simply prepared to be birthed as degenerate. And you can see the flow of it right there in verse five. They lived among the Canaanites. In verse six, they married their daughters and their daughters married them. In verse seven, they adopted the lifestyle. It says they did what was evil and they fully, verse seven continues, served the Baals and the Asherot. 
by the way, if you see this, it says Asherot here, and then it says Ashtaroth up ahead. What's, what's the difference between the two? The Asherot are the idols of Asheroth or Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth is the goddess, the Asheroth, or you hear the Asherah poles, those are the idols. Asherah poles were poles that were worshiped. The Asheroth uh, were little pocket idols or wooden idols of Ashtaroth. That's the distinction there. Romans chapter 12, verse two, Paul speaks directly to what we just read. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Prove it to who, Paul? Prove it to yourself so that you will know and that I will know the will of God and live by the will of God. And what happens here, and we're gonna close out because we're finished with the first entire section of the book, well done, but God's answer to this degenerate failure is to hand them over completely to the culture with which they were flirting. Do you want this culture? He allows them the full experience of their liaisons with the Canaanites and Amorites and Hivites and Jebusites. Paul details that. I'm not gonna read it right now, but Romans chapter one, Paul details that's exactly what happens when God gives us over. And he gave the people of Israel over to the culture of the day. You want to live in that culture? I told you drive it out. I had a culture for you that was so beautiful, so wonderful, so theocratic under my divine and perfect rule, but you don't want that. You want the culture that you came into? I'm going to let you live with that. And so they would. And they will be led around by the nose for 340 years. People want to be led. But if we're not led by the Lord, we're going to be led by the enemy. If we're not followers of Jesus, we are gonna follow other paths. Turn to the 106th Psalm, and we'll end there tonight. Psalm 106. It's an exile psalm. I'm taking you here because what's interesting, we believe this was penned possibly by Daniel or Jeremiah. Some think the eight singing Levites in Nehemiah chapter nine, but the point is this was penned by an exile. This is penned by one who would be after Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity. Psalm 106 was written around that time, looking back at how they got here, looking back at the end result of degeneration. And in verse 34, you can read the whole psalm on your own time, but it leads up from beginning to verse 34 where it says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. They mingled with the nations. They learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. Now, listen, if that seems weird to you, why is it that we do some of the things that we do as Americans? There are things we've embraced as Americans because it's our American way of life. And I'm not even talking about sin stuff. I'm just talking about cultural stuff because, hey, man, we live here, so we do what we do here. We're raised with it, we grow up with it, we do it. If you are raised in Canaan, you do like the Canaanites. And that's the problem. If you want to live the culture, then you end up being like the culture in which you live. They mingled, they learned their practices, served their idols, which became a snare to them. Verse 37, they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. We're not talking about Canaanites, we're talking about Israelites here. 
the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. And thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his inheritance. And then he gave them into the hand of the nations and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them. They were subdued under their power. Many times, verse 43, he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down in their iniquity. Nevertheless, and here's the character of God, my friends, he looked upon their distress and when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness, which is not a big enough word. It's hesed. His grace, his mercy, his loving kindness, the very nature of God in grace. And he also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. It is a remarkable statement in spite of all their rebellion and hard-heartedness and offense and all that they did and all that they became, God still looked upon them, <laughs> still looks upon them as the people of his covenant promises, still loved them, still had grace for them. And the psalm ends, save us, O Lord our God, gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. Isn't it amazing that on the other side of all this degeneration, we find a generation in exile crying out to God for salvation. And what's even more amazing is he hears him. He hears him. People want to be led. As we began, we were created that way. And the only way to, to break then this cycle of degeneration, whether it's in your life personally or my life or in our culture, the only way to break the cycle is to be led out by the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Father, thank you for your word. It's a lot to take in and to consider, but it's just the pattern, isn't it, Lord, that we've seen so many times? Pattern I think many of us have seen in our own lives, this, this cycle, Lord, that we can get on. And, and we take our eyes off you and we start to live like the culture. We start to do the things of our society rather than standing up as the people of God. Oh, Father, I'm so grateful for your patience and your long suffering and for your chesed. Lord, we need your grace. And so we tonight, like the psalmist, we say, save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, amen, amen, amen.